0: Right. How's everybody doing? The 9, 15, and the 11 shall meet. We will make it a decree every year. It's amazing, man. So good to see everybody. I love the Advent season. Uh, if you know anything about the Harmon family, we're Christmas people. Uh, we are actually beginning a re- renovation, so we are not doing a bunch of Christmas decorating, which, you know, kind of causes a little bit of depression. Like we, it's like usually in this season, we're picking up trees from Costco. Somebody told me Costco didn't have any trees. Is that right? I mean, the world must be coming to an end. I mean, that is an important thing to to have. Well, we start off the Advent season. If you've been around uh, the church for a while, we start out and we are in the season of waiting, as Aaron was talking about, the season of Advent. But it's kind of a, it's positionally, there's a juxtaposition between something that, that has already arrived and something that is coming. I mean, we celebrate the coming King. We celebrate the Hallelujah Chorus being sung for the very first time to shepherds. In Bethlehem, there's a manger and there's all of these things that the King has come. The Savior that we believe uh, is the only one that saves has come. And that, that the feeling and celebrating the anticipation of Christmas and what it means for Jesus to be born and ultimate salvation to be available and our reuniting being possible with the God that's created us. But there's also the waiting of the in-between and in where we are right now where we're waiting for his return. So Advent is kind of there's a twofold thing that we're doing doing in Advent, not just to celebrate what's, what has been, but where we are and what we're anticipating. And I love that it, it highlights, especially right at the beginning of Advent, something that we all, I think, long for and that we all think about, especially in this season, which is, well, I'll just say it, say it like this. You know, anybody see the Hunger Games? Anybody? Hunger Games people? Yeah. Well, President Snow says this in the Hunger Games. There's only one thing stronger than fear. What is it? I heard a little voice in here say hope. I love it. We got elementary in here. They're like, I know that. I just saw it yesterday. Hope, that is what is stronger. And, he, and he's talking in the context of we can't, we can't allow hope to rise because we use fear to oppress. But if hope rises, it is, it is stronger than fear. And it is a true statement when you think about hope. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple of different kinds of hope today. Uh, One earthly hope, which is one that I think that we're all familiar with, but also a biblical God-birthed hope that we can experience even on this side of heaven. You know, growing up for me, uh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes people put people in categories in terms of hopeful and cynical. I don't know if anybody, if, if there's anybody you know, you know, cynical people aren't going to raise their hand if I say, who in here is cynical? But you do have people that are hopeful. And I'm not saying this in a good way about myself, but maybe I am. I'm a hopeful person. I grew up that way. I was, my, my parents were very different uh, in many ways, my dad went to the Citadel, squared away, hospital corners on everything. I mean, he was just tight and secure. You weren't on time. You were 15 minutes early. Everything was just the way that it was. And God's, you know, kind of funny joke is that uh, he ended up with my mom, who is artistic and, uh, you know, very creative. You know, was always at art shows doing macrame. She's an interior uh, decorator and designer. And her car's an absolute mess. My dad's is impeccable. I mean, we used to, as jokes with my dad, like we would lick our finger and just touch his rearview mirror and get out of the car. And it literally drove him insane. I mean, it would just, me would get in the car and immediately look in the back seat. Uh, and he went to the Citadel, so we then would get a beating. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But he gets nervous when I say that. No, he didn't beat us very much. Um, but we, you know, that, that's the household in, But they were very much the same when it came to Hope. Both, both my parents and my mom's in here sitting in a different seat. See, people, when you have one service, the a type A people are like, what happened to my seat? Arkels, you got your seat, didn't you? You came early. You're like, hey, you know, church ain't gonna be the same without seat, baby. We got to get here early. Uh, but, you know, my mom would say they, they're just hopeful people. And you, I grew up, and it wasn't that they protected me from a lot, but I was a naive kid. Like, I was one of those kids that I feel like I grew up and kind of leave it to Beaverland. Like, I just, everything was good. I was the one you had to tell, stranger danger, you can't talk to everyone. I mean, you had to do that. I, and I was a nightmare in that way. I did Talk to everyone. Like I was, an, I'm an out of the box, you know, out of the helmet speaker. I remember one time my mom was, this is a, a totally unrelated, and I wasn't even planning on saying this, but it just popped in my head. Um, that's kind of the way it works. One service I thought I, I get to talk twice as long, right? So <laughs> my mom was, we had, remember Johnny Bench batter up? Anybody? One of those things, you wind it, see this, that's older school. You wind it up. It's the dumbest toy ever. Insurance companies would never allow this to exist in our world. You'd wind it up, and then this baseball would just swing around like this, and then you would hit it, and it would just go back back around. And my mom's taking her turn at the Johnny Bench batter up, and I'm like right here, and bang, hits me right in the eye. So I had the worst shiner of all time. So I would walk to the grocery store, and people would say, what happened to your eye? And I'd say, my mom hit me with a baseball bat. (laughs) It's not really the thing you want to be rolling out with. But I, I, besides that, I grew up a very positive person full of hope. Um, and, and it was kind of the way that I operated. I mean, my kids would say that. My wife would say that. Maybe not as much anymore. And this is the reason why. Because life happens. Like, you get to that point where you're in middle school, you're in high school. I mean, you experience life starts to, to ding you. The people that, like, I trusted people and assumed the best of people. And then all of a sudden, things happen. You break up with somebody you can't believe. Like, she brought me. She was at my locker every day telling me that she loved me. She put cookies in there on game day. I mean, she was awesome. And then next thing you know, she's with your friend. And then all of a sudden, the hope starts to sink, doesn't it? I mean, you start, and life goes on. And, and I don't know if this was the breaking point of my, my hope kind of, spirit kind of being broken. Um, and I used to not like cynical people. Like, I just was like, why are you going to complain? And why do we have to do, why does all humor have to be based around uh, cynicism? And then now I'm just, I have to fight my own cynicism because I'm 50. Uh, and... <laughs> Life begins to happen, but I was in college, and I I I would venture to guess maybe two people know this story because I was so ashamed and embarrassed that I did this. But somebody called me. uh, I was probably a sophomore, junior in college. He called me on an actual telephone, one that was attached to the wall, and said, "Hey, uh, you're going to get a package in the mail, and it is you've you've been chosen for this this gift, this prize." Uh and it, it was you, you you've got a 50-50 chance of winning a Jeep Wrangler. Now at the time I drove the worst car on the planet. I don't know if it's the worst car on the planet, but you could hear it coming from like two miles away. Like it would just one. the valves were just totally blown. I don't think I ever changed the oil in it. It was just bad. And I mean I needed a new car and a Jeep. I mean, it's like college life. I mean, just Jeeps just say college. You don't even have to write the word college, you just put a Jeep there. It's college, right? I wanted a Jeep, and I thought, this is amazing. i got a 50-50 chance of winning a Jeep. Tell me more. And he says, well, actually, it's a win-win. If you don't win the Jeep, then you get a cruise for all of your friends. And I was like, well, please tell me, sir. What do I have to do? Well, he says, there is a deposit and an initiation fee that you're going to have to pay. Now, all of the, you see, the cynical people in here, I heard the laugh. <laughs> I didn't know. I, was, I mean, I'm a hopeful person. And so... I said, well, what is it? He says, well, it's $400. I know it seems like a lot of money. Now, this is 1994. $400 for a college student might as well have been winning the $21.2 million lottery. I mean, that is just a whole lot of cash, $400. But I thought, win-win. Either way, 50-50 chance. And he he was telling me stories about all the people that had won. He goes, I haven't really talked to anybody that won the cruise. Everybody seems to be winning the Jeep. It's kind of the way things are going right now. So I wrote a check to this ding-dong for $400. Can you believe that? And then guess what happened? I didn't hear from that joker for a, forever. <laughs> it didn't happen. I mean, I tried to run them down and then all of a sudden I got this little package in the mail of like cruise coupons. Like it was like the worst thing ever. I, I literally burned them in the backyard. I was so mad. Didn't tell a soul. I don't even know. Did I ever tell you? My wife doesn't even know this story. You're hearing it for the first time. I know. I owe you $400. But <laughs> In that that moment, this is what happens in life. We begin to realize that life is hard. We begin to realize that it's easy to move into a different place when it comes to hope. We move into a a place where I I went from, I loathe cynical people, I don't like cynical people, to waging war against my own cynicism as I've gotten older. And we want hope to rise. And as I even looked into just the, the secular views of hope, you know, I was reading some things in... Uh, psychology journals and soci- sociological journals and some contemporary people that you know give a lot of commentary in these, these areas. And they were talking about the idea that when, when you think about hope and you think about cynicism or you think about somebody that's eager about life and somebody that's cynical about life, you could have two people going through the exact same circumstance and they see it completely different. And to you, that might not be revolutionary, but think about, think about that when it comes to hopes. You could have somebody that is going through a very difficult circumstance and a very difficult situation, and it's very possible that perception-wise, this person can achieve actual true joy and see things differently, see what's coming down the pipe differently, see what the future might be completely differently than this person. You've got somebody that's standing on the side of hope and somebody that's standing on the, size, the side of gloom. Not believing that, that anything's going to get, get good, that things won't change. And as I read more, they talked about kind of the difference in how people approach things with the two sets of lenses. You've got people that are hopeful, that sit on the non-cynical side, that can, can change the way that they think in any particular situation. Not, not ignoring the, the mountain that's in front of them, not ignoring the circumstances like all of life is rainbows and lollipops, but just the way that they traverse life differently, that that lens is different. And they talk about the other side usually says something like, hey, I'm hoping for the best but planning for the worst. And I just want to say, if that's something that you've said, you're probably in the cynical camp. That's what everything told me. That's not me. It's every article I read. I'm going to hope for the best, but I'm going to plan for the worst. In other words, you're doing something in, in psychological terms called pre-grieving. You're looking down the road and, and all of a sudden you're looking at all the situations that I'm I've got a I've got a, a I'm getting test results at the doctor's office in three weeks. Think about that type of scenario. What what happens to the mind, the cynical mind specifically, and, and, and us that can get into that place of fearfulness? We pre-grieve, right? Like, what if it's cancer? What if this is the outcome? What if there is something awful? What if, and we go down all the roads, what's going to happen to the money? Do we have the right insurance? Do we have the right... And it's not that we, do, we shouldn't plan in life, but there's something that we, we do on that particular side as we begin to pre-grieve before we've even gotten... In other words, what if there's a long, drawn-out process of years? And here's the ultimate thing that I don't know, and I know what this is like. Somebody that Anybody that's gone through an undiagnosed anything... You go through a season and you can pre-grieve and waste a whole lot of time to find out ultimately that it wasn't what they thought it was. And you think, I wish I would have known here that I had hope here. But there was nothing solid to give you any indication that you were there. So you pre-grieve all of those things. And for many of us that have experienced that, we think, "What? how much time did I waste in the pre-grieving process when I could have lived a more hopeful life? How do we get there? And most of the articles, like I read one by Jason Silva, who I, I know you guys know, I've watched. He's not a Christian, but he's got great insight. But he comes to the, the, the conclusion with the two lenses, like how do you achieve the lens that actually will, will enhance your life, make you healthier physically? And his, he just throws his hands up and says, I don't know, but man, I'm looking for it. I want to know what that lens is. I want to know how to change that lens, how to grab hold of that lens and put those glasses on so that I see life in a different perspective because I know that life isn't easy. And you know, it's interesting when it comes to hope, you know, Peter, you know, is preaching to people in Asia Minor. He says, you should be, be able to respond when people ask you about the hope that is in you. You know, for us old school Christians, we always use that passage about this is, this is why we need to know the Bible really well so we can defend ourselves on Facebook. But that's not really what Peter is saying he 's saying, he's saying two things the implications of that is you should Christians should be hopeful and winsome, but not not without a foundation. they should also the other implication of what he 's saying is there should be a reason for your hope. there should be a reason that you that people see you in a different light, they see you experiencing things that the rest of the world experiences and it pulls them down, it tears them to shreds. It's not that we walk around faking that life isn't hard. It's that we're anchored to something different than the rest of the world as Christians and as believers. And if you look at this passage, I want to back up just a little bit as we, as we dig in. And it was so wonderfully read and it's just full of hope, but it, it, it comes on the heels of, just to give you context of where you are in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet is speaking in a current situation. But the prophecy that that unfolds about Jesus that we just heard is going to happen 700 years later. I mean, that's a lot of waiting. But but what's going on contextually is things are not so good. This is where the beginning of the exiles begin. Like Assyria is the strongest nation in the world. And they're beginning to take over more land and more land and more land. And now they've encroached um, on the northern kingdom. They haven't come to Judah. That's going to happen with the Babylonian exile 200 some years later. That's the, the Daniel. When you, when you hear the stories, kids, about Daniel in the lion's den, that's the second exile. First exile is the Assyrian exile, and they start in the northern kingdom. And it, during the reading, they're talking about you know, uh, Naphtali and the, the Sea of Galilee. It's going to happen in this region. The, the initial invasion is going to happen in and around the Sea of Galilee, which you know, we're familiar with, if you know anything about Jesus, that he did most of his ministry in that particular area. So Isaiah is talking about that to the people and prophetically talking to them saying, hey, this is, this is something that's getting ready to happen. And some of it was good and some of it was bad. But if we back up into chapter 8, starting in verse 21. So you got Isaiah chapter 9 is what we just read. But in chapter 8 it says, distressed and hungry, talking about the Israelites, they roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward. They will curse their king and their God. He's saying these people are cynical and don't have hope when they look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, that is the precursor whenever you start a chapter and it says something like, nevertheless, comma, that means there's something that happened before. So that's why we went back to eight. He says, nevertheless, he's bringing hope. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, that word gloom is actually a horizon, it's horizon language he's saying darkness and gloom is what they saw that were on the horizon meaning there was an invasion coming the assyrians were going to be completely brutal and it's going to start in the northern kingdom around zebulon and naphtali in the past he humbled the land of zebulon and the land of naphtali but in the future he will honor galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the jordan so what Isaiah is saying here is, hey, the first place that's going to experience this crushing hurt, don't lose hope because it's going to be the first place that's going to experience rescue in and around the Sea of Galilee. So we've got gloom and things were dark, but hope is coming. And then we see in verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, I want to I want you to see this passage, maybe a little different than you have before, You've got two, two pieces to it. You've got the gloom and you've got the dawn. Now, it does mention light, but what, what Isaiah is alluding to is that we're going to be in a place of dawn, which is a place of hope. Not complete, utter restoration, but a place of hope. And if you think about dawn, you think about gloom, that's complete darkness. And Isaiah is saying, You're going, there, there's a dawning of a new day. There is, there is light That is going to come on the horizon that will will give you hope, that will change the way that you think, that will will put a foundation under your feet because you will know that you will have a secure future. But he calls it dawn, the dawning of a new day. It's horizontal language. Now, think about dawn. Dawn isn't where it's the brightest. In fact, at dawn, if you've ever been out at the beach, when we go to our rise gatherings, you walk out, it's still dark. I mean, you walk out and we're preparing for the Rise Gathering, you see this glimmer of light on the horizon, but everybody's still got their headlamps on because it's dark and everybody's setting up all the gears, setting up all the speakers, so it's amazing out there when you guys show up. But it's barely, it's dawn, it's barely, you see, uh, just a crest of light on the horizon. But what that crest of light is guaranteeing, what we always know when we see it, is the daytime is coming. The light is coming. It is going to shine in full brightness. It's not yet here, but the joy has already started. I don't, I don't see it fully and completely yet on this side of heaven, but to live in the dawn is a beautiful place to live. Even with the brokenness, even though, there's, even though it's dark, even though we still got the headlamps on, even though it's hard to traverse where we're walking in life, we're living in dawn and we know that something's coming that will change everything. You and I, what's possible for us is that we can live in the dawn. The light is coming, but we can live in the dawn, which is a beautiful place to be, despite the darkness that we experience. And if you've lived on earth long enough, I've said this before, you're going to bleed. You're going to walk through darkness. You're going to walk through difficulty. You're going to have seasons in life where you're going to cut checks to the wrong person. You're going to have things that happen along the way that change, it's, that you're gonna, you're gonna wage war on whether or not God loves you and what your future is going to be like. But it's possible for us to live life in the place of hope, in the place of dawn, outside of the world of gloom. And it's a very hopeful place to be because it's a place where we know that we will fully experience light. Now, we gotta understand the world's definition of hope is different than the biblical definition of hope. I mean, for us, and I'll, I'll just read this It's an article from Gospel Coalition. I could probably, you know, paraphrase it, but I, I do like the way it's written. Hope is, hard to def- is a hard word to define today. When we say it, we often do so with our fingers crossed. For instance, if you ask me if I think the Warriors will win the NBA finals next year, all I can say is I hope so. What I really mean is I don't know, but there's a chance. I always think of dumb and dumber at that point. <laughs> so you're saying I got a chance. We apply hope to things we're not sure are actually going to happen. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. Overwhelmingly the Bible uses the word in uses the word it's in the context of sure deliverance, the dawn. Scripture uses hope when God has spoken because when God speaks even if promising a future reality, it's as good as done. For the Christian, hope is, is, is not a mere slogan. It's as real as the tomb is empty. It's a sure hope. It's a sure foundation. Romans eight twenty four through 25 says, For in this hope we were saved. It's not a, I wonder if. It's not a, fingers crossed. It's not, I hope the Seminoles win and they didn't. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hebrews 6.19, I love this because it's something that we hold on to here at Ocean City Church, that we have this hope, this anchor for the soul. Hope is not this flimsy thing of I wonder if. It is an anchor for the soul. What is it? It's firm and secure. Very different than earthly hope. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, which all that means is, Our relationship with God has changed because of Jesus. Jesus is the anchor of our hope. Jesus is everything. Make my heart believe, we were singing, that we actually can come into the presence of God with no fear. Well, that's the guarantee of being a follower of Jesus, is that the the dividing wall of hostility has been broken, and now because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can enter into his presence, into the sanctuary, in a relationship with him. I can have a quiet time in my closet, at my house, and be absolutely floored because the presence of God is there. That is the miracle of being back in a right relationship with God. That is an incredible thing for us. That is biblical hope. It goes beyond the curtain into the presence of God. Hebrews 11, we have the element of faith. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We can have assurance about something that we don't see. Something that we don't see yet. We might see a brim of light on the horizon, but we haven't seen the sun completely rise and sit high in the sky, illuminating everything that is on planet Earth. If you understand the illustration, we, on this side of heaven, we see dimly. We see darkly, the Apostle Paul says, but soon we will see Jesus face to face. And we won't need a sun because he will be the radiance that, that we all will experience. Hope without faith is fragile, and it's fleeting. It's what puts us into the place of pre-grieving. So I know the question that's on on the table is, how do we live a life experiencing the dawn, knowing that, hey, it's not easy on this side of heaven, but I can see the light on the horizon? How how do we go to that place that Isaiah is, is foretelling saying in 700 years you're going to see the dawning of a new day. You're going to see the brimming of the horizon. Something's going to change. And it's going to come right, it's interesting, it comes right around the sea. Look where Jesus does all of his ministry. Right there where the northern kingdom was, in and around the Sea of Galilee. The region and the nation around the Sea of Galilee. This is where the light was going to dawn, in Bethlehem. How do we, how do we have this lens change as Jason Silva was saying. How do we get to that place where I can, I can have the same circumstance as somebody else and I can experience the dawn, I can ex- experience hope? And for the people in this room, I mean, I know just because I've walked with a lot of people in this season, we've experienced a lot of death, a lot of hurt, a lot of divorce, a lot of just heartache and heart, heartbreak. It's been a difficult season, not just for the entire country and for the world, but it's been a difficult season for Ocean City Church. How do, we, how do we see things differently where, just like Peter was preaching to the followers of Jesus in Asia Minor saying, hey, you should be able to, your, your life should look like something that people would ask questions and say, how do you have hope? How do you live believing that something's going get, to get better when you're being persecuted all day long? How, how, how is this possible? You should be ready to give the response. One, you should look hopeful, but you also have a reason to be hopeful. So I want to just real quickly talk about—I just call it the trifocal lens of hope—and it all comes from God's word and the power of His Spirit. What's the trifocal lens? And I'm going to do it kind of backward because you know it's—we're it, going to talk about the, the past faithfulness of God, the current reality that we live in, and the future hope. But I want to start with the future hope because I think as Christians we all think about heaven, and that—that that becomes the thing that we all—we're like, okay, yeah, I know heaven's coming, but I got to live here, right? Like it's life doesn't seem it it might be short, but it doesn't seem short, at least not this week. Right. So let's talk about the future hope in Revelation 21. I love this because it it reminds me of what's coming. We have to remember that there's something coming on the horizon. And this is when Jesus returns again to make all things new. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I love that, that it's not just. Floating around a new heaven, earth's going to be no more. It's going to be new heaven, new earth. Because I like things on earth. Like God, there's God's common grace, there's waves to surf, you know? And there's going to be waves in heaven to surf too. I don't know, any surfers out here? Yeah, there's going to be big ones, like really good ones. And they won't hurt you and hold you down on a reef where you think you're going to die. It's going to be amazing. Actually, you'll, there'll be, all the people you don't like will be held down on the reef and you'll be surfing over them. I'm kidding, it won't be like that. So the new heaven and new earth, the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. Well, there's no sea. How is there going to be waves? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be their guides. The promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis or all the way at the end in Revelation. In verse four, I love it. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine kids never crying, like never having anything to cry about? Amazing. Parents are like, I wish they didn't have anything to cry about. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Why do you think he wants him to write it down? He wants us to be able to put our hope on display. He wants us in the circumstance for John, who is, is, is getting these words from God, to, to, to be able to take these words and say, hey, the, the, the followers of Jesus, the ones carrying my name, they need to hear these words. They need to know what's coming because that will change everything when it comes to the lens that they have. I mean, I think about when you know everything's going to be new, when you know that heaven is going to be amazing, when you know that there's going to be a new earth, when you know every, every tear will be wiped from every eye and that all things will be made new, which means, that doesn't mean that we're just going to get a mind wipe and everything, but it means that God is going to take everything that was bad and he is going to reimagine it and he is going to restructure it and make it new. He is going to redeem it, which is even more beautiful because it, it leaves the dark canvas to offset his beautiful and wonderful light that we can see who he is and we get to glory and where we are and where we used to be. That's an amazing thought. And it made me think of, you know, there's, there's moments in life that are tiny little glimpses of what it looks like to know the future, to go beyond earthly hope and and know that it's actually gonna happen. It's like two weeks notice. I mean, there's something pretty awesome about two weeks notice. Anybody, like when you finally tell your, especially if you have a really like crappy job and you get to put in your, like you got a better job, like way, way better, and you get to put in two weeks notice. What are those two weeks like? I mean, you don't have the job yet. You're not getting the paychecks yet. There's just the dawn, right? You're just getting the brim of light, but you go into work a whole different man. You know what I'm saying? You go in there. It's not that you mistreat people along the way. I mean, if you're a naughty person, you might. But you cruise into work, smiling. Everybody else is in their cubicle. And you're just like, you know, cruising in and going, what's up? Jerry, it's nice to see you. Only two more weeks, but it's good to see you again. Maybe we'll hang out have drinks later. It's good. I mean, your, your whole attitude changes. Your lens is completely changed. Are you still going to work for those two weeks? Yes. How you operate when you're at work is different. And your joy in your mindset. You're not looking at the clock going, I can't believe I'm doing this again. It's 4.59. You know what I mean? You're not doing that anymore because you know something good is coming on the horizon. I mean, how many lottery winners do you think pre-spend their money? Like before they've ever, ever got anything in the paycheck. I mean, they are already meeting with people. They're already browsing the houses. They are already on. Now, there is some pretty tragic lottery stories because money doesn't change life. I mean, it'd be nice, but it doesn't change everything, Right. But it's getting it and knowing that it's coming. What if you knew that you were going to win the lottery in a year? I mean, would you be quibbling over the things that you quibble over? Would you be, you know, I mean, your tips would be a lot bigger. I mean, you'd be better human beings knowing that money's coming. That's the idea of future hope. When we know that it's coming, it should change and reframe the way that we think. So that's future hope. But what about current reality? Because this is where we live. We live in this place, and it's possible for us to, to live in the dawn. What's our current reality, biblically, and what's happening? There's so many things that we could talk about when it comes to our current reality that could change our mindset and change the focal lens. Deuteronomy 31.6, I love that It says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. Well, that's the way I want to live. Because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, I think those words right there as a Christian, I have repeated those things in my head over and over again in some of the darkest places that he is not going to leave me or forsake me. He is with me. I mean, I think about Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know why? Because you are with me. Because you're with me. In the current reality that you're living in, God's not absent. God is not, we, we often, in our circumstances, in the way that we pray, we often want to be, be ejected out of our circumstances. And it seems like that would be the best thing for us. But what God does more faithfully for us is He injects Himself into our circumstances. He comes into the valley, He goes into the pit, and He remains there with us because He will never leave us or forsake us on this side of heaven while we live in the dawn and the not yet realized he walks with us. And when he's with you, that should change your mindset in every circumstance, in every situation. You know, I was in college. I had this, uh, this roommate. Uh, he's the sweetest guy, the big teddy bear, but he was enormous. Like he was 6'5", about two, 295 pounds, um, played football. And I had this very small, very mouthy Italian roommate. And uh, it was so interesting to see my, my roommate go out Without, like, Gary was my, I won't mention the other guy's name. Um, he, Gary, you know, would stay home sometimes, and Matt would go out on his own, and he was a different human being without Gary around. Like, when, because, when, and he was Italian, and he really wanted to mouth off, but he knew, I, it's a whole different ball game when Gary's not around. Now, if Gary was around, I mean, this Italian became super Italian. Like, he was just like, because Gary's behind him. He's six foot four, and he's his friend. He had hands like Andre the Giant. I mean, he was really big. I mean, in my, you know, Matt would just be like looking around like, I hope somebody mouths off to me. I mean, he was just like, you told me what to do, Gary. I mean, it's just immediate. You know, he had he had somebody with him and it changed the confidence in which he lived in life. I mean, if we were out with Gary, there was nothing. I mean, we just it was we were not nervous about getting pushed around um, and we could have been pushed around because we were small and insignificant. But Gary was enormous. And was very capable of taking care of any problem. And he always did it nice, you know, before he hit somebody. I mean, he was always like, look, I think we ought to all calm down here. And then somebody would get hit. And it was all over. And Gary just kind of shut it down. You got somebody with you, it changes things. It changes things. You know, I think about in the place where in, in life, especially in the last season of life and then, you know, 12, 15 years ago, you know, I went through some serious medical stuff. And you know, God met me in that place, and the fact that He would never leave me or forsake me is something that took a while to strike me, but it changed the way that I I walked. And my wife would tell you, it changed the way I interacted with the world around me in a huge way. You know, I recently watched King Richard. Anybody you know uh, know that movie? It's it's really really good. Actually, it's about uh, Venus and Serena Williams. About their dad, actually. And I just thought about the unconditional love, the current reality for you and me when it comes to Jesus and unconditional love, the unconditional love of a father, the one that, you know, he would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how would he not graciously give us all things? That is our that is not something that's just down the road. That is our current, current reality is we have someone that loves us unconditionally. And if you watch that movie, you watch a father do some things. He's not perfect by any means. But he sacrifices himself in every way, gets beat up in Compton near the tennis courts every day protecting his daughters. I mean, it is an incredible story and changed the trajectory of the way that they engage with the tennis world. Because he said, I I know this is the way that everybody else does it, but I am protecting who you are as human beings, not as tennis stars. And he made some decisions that could have been detrimental to their career, but he knew we're going to be better for them as human beings. And I think about how God walks with me and the way that he does things in my life and the way that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thinking I want to be ejected out of this circumstance. But God says, this is going to be better for you that you walk through this circumstance with me. And you're going to come out the other side better as a human being. That's our current reality, that we have a father that loves us unconditionally, so much so that he gave his own son. So that's future hope, current reality, and then past faithfulness. And I'll end here. You know, when you think about past faithfulness, it's the thing that we, that we sing about. It's what, it's what puts us in a, a different place as we gather as the saints and we hear each other's voices singing together, in harmony together. Well, partly harmony. Some people, not as good as others. But we're singing together, synchronized in our voices, proclaiming hopes of what God has done in the past, what he's what he's accomplished for us. And past performance certainly puts us in the place of dawn. The past performance of God, knowing what God has, what he's done for us, changes the way that we see, changes the lens in which we engage on planet earth. He split the sea so that we could walk right through it. He made the shepherd boy a king. He brought down Goliath. He gave Ruth The man of her dreams. He was in the fiery furnace and not a hair on their head was burned. He saved Daniel from the mouth of the lion. He defeated the Midianites with the most fearful, smallest man in Israel's camp, Gideon. The faithfulness of God is something that we can see just rising off the pages of Scripture over and over again. And they're there because God loves us and wants to lead us to this place of knowing and understanding that He is faithful that his timing is always going to be better than ours. You know, I was at a, a funeral recently. Um, it was uh, Seth Johnson's father. And it was a, I, I usually don't get super weepy at funerals, but I really, I bawled my eyes out at this funeral. And I didn't even know Tom that well, his father. But Seth and, and his brother and his sister all got up and spoke. And it was so real and it was so raw. But so much of what was said, and, and Tim specifically, Seth's brother, um, I mean, definitely has an anointing on his life in the way that he speaks and can bring hope in the middle of death because it, it I, I walked out of there with joy, out of a funeral. And, and he did something very simple. All, his, all he did was proclaim God's past performance in their life. He went back and he remembered all of the good things that God had done, including through their father who wasn't perfect. And then he had everybody, and we're gonna do this in, right now, He had everybody, as he made these statements, just say, God is good. So I'm going to make these statements and I'm going, to walk, I'm going to show you how to, we're going to do this and this is something that we're going to practice through the Christmas season. Maybe we'll practice it with our families. Maybe just like it says in the Old Testament, when we, when we go to bed, when we rise, when we walk along the road, I'm going, to, I'm going to pass these things on to my children so that they pass them on to their children, that we remember the promises of God so that we as the people of God could live in the dawn, in the hope of the not yet realized when Jesus will be the son and we will see him face to face. So for me, I'm going to say a statement, and these are about my life, but you're going to insert them into your life when you get home. When I say them, you're just going to say, God is good. You're going to repeat it back to me, all right? So I'll start a little bit later in life when I was in college. He got me through speech class. God is good. When we moved to Jacksonville, we were alone, and we met the most faithful friends, When Beth was in a horrible car accident that destroyed her car, she came out with barely a scratch. When my business partners decided to pay more for our overall insurance so I could go to Mayo during a health crisis. When my wife had a miscarriage, very soon after that, God gave us a beautiful girl named Ella soon after. Previously, and still Terrified to speak in front of other humans, God made me a preacher. When the entire planning commission here in Jacksonville Beach pre decided to say no to OCC being in this location, in a packed room full of you people, they all said yes except for one. We love you, Georgette. We're here still. When I was going through a health crisis in my my darkest hour, my most depressed hour, he met me in the pit of despair. When I thought I was done for, he set my feet upon a rock. When I thought I would never experience joy again, he put a song in my heart. After 400 years of silence, the angels sang the hallelujah chorus for the very first time in a field among shepherds to say, a savior is born because on Calvary, the worst day in history became the best day in history because the cross led to an empty grave. If death couldn't hold him down, then nothing can hold you down. If he did it once, he can do it again. God is good. God is good. God is good. We can live in the dawn And we can be a bright, shining reflection of the light to come with the hope of glory that rests in our soul. His name is Jesus, only Jesus. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love that you're good, that you bring us to this place of hope. A hope not wondering if something's gonna happen, but a hope knowing That you are faithful and knowing that you're coming again. This come Holy Spirit, change the lens.